Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Manor, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. If you have your Bibles with you, let's open it up to Genesis chapter 29. Uh, For those of you that are joining us for the first time, we have been walking through the book of Genesis. That's pretty much our standard in how we approach what we talk about on Sunday mornings. We we just want to walk through books of the Bible. So that's primarily what we're going to do. There will be times when we stop and we look at a theme that comes out of the Bible. But our desire is not to be like this topic church, like here's the nine ways to have a healthy life. Uh, Every day's Friday. You know, we're not going to we're not going to do that kind of stuff because we actually want to teach the truth that's transformative, which is the word of God. And frankly, Darren and I aren't that creative. So we, we're just going to look at what God has given us. So let's look at Genesis chapter 29. And I'm going to read verses one to 30 and then we'll talk about some things out of it. So this is the word of God. Genesis 29, starting in verse one. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where did you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said, Is it well with him? They said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, surely you are bone You are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. 
So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Jacob gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you've done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. This is the word of God. What a crazy story. First of all, my father-in-law and mother-in-law, I'm so grateful you didn't have two daughters. That would have been a total surprise. I'm just being honest. Um, but it's important to remember as we approach 29, what happens just prior to this text? Because, you know, they really do set an important context for everything going forward. And I'm going to do my best to try to help catch you up uh, if you're here for the first time. See, if you remember, so in Genesis chapter 12, God calls a man named Abram, who later becomes a man named Abraham. God chose him from among the, the, the people of the world and called him to himself and gave him a very important promise. He says to him, I'm going to bring you to me. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be mine. And I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you a massive amounts of, of, of descendants that come after you, which is going to become a great nation. And I'm going to protect you. I'm going to bless those that you bless. And through you, Abraham... Through this people who will dwell in this land, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. What God was doing is God, in calling Abraham to himself, was beginning his, uh, or taking a huge step forward in redeeming a broken world back to himself. Sin had broken everything. We read that in Genesis 3. And if we read 4 to 11, things just keep getting worse. Because here's a fundamental truth that comes from the scriptures. Sin wrecks everything. Sin never makes anything better. It completely wrecks everything. And so God intervenes, calls this man Abram to himself, and promises him land, promises him blessing, promises him descendants, and most importantly, promises that I'm going to be your God, and I'm going to bless the whole world through you. So then as he works in Abraham and his wife Sarah's life, they have a child of promise, which is amazing because Sarah was barren her whole life. But God, in his mercy, opens her womb, and in an old age has a son named Isaac. And God takes all the promises that he, was, that, that he had given to Abraham and he passes them to Isaac. And he says, everything that I promised to your dad, I'm going to now give 
to you. And through you, Isaac, I'm going to create a great people. They're going to be more numerous than the stars of the sky. I'm going to give you the same land, and I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth through what I'm going to do through you. So then Isaac and his wife, they have two sons, Jacob and Esau. Esau is the older son. You would think all of the promises would be passed to the older son, Esau, because that was the tradition in antiquity. But God flips the script and says, no, actually the older is going to serve the younger. And it's through Jacob that all the promises that I gave to Abraham, that I've given to Isaac, I'm now going to give to you Jacob. And that's what happens right at the tail end of Genesis chapter 28, which is mind boggling because here's the deal. Jacob's kind of a jerk. Like, I just hate to say it. Jacob's not really a dude that you'd be excited, uh, you know, that, that your daughter brings home. Right. He's a deceiver. He cheats his brother out of his birthright. He goes into this weird conniving plan to dress up in like this Halloween costume to look like his brother to steal the blessing. So he lies to his father. He, he cheats his brother and it creates this absolute family chaos that, may, that, that causes Jacob to have to leave home to flee to another land called Haran, which is where he arrives in Genesis 29, because Jacob was so bad. You want to talk about sibling rivalry. He was so bad in his family, his own brother literally wanted to murder him. Like, didn't just want to like, I'm going to kill you. You know, no, literally, I'm going to murder you the next time I see you. That's not hyperbole. Esau wanted to kill him. And the family was devastated because of all of this. But yet at the end of Genesis 28, God comes to Jacob. And God reveals himself to him and says, all the promises that I gave to your dad and all the promises that I gave to your grandfather, I'm passing them to you. I'm going to establish a relationship with you, Jacob. I'm going to give you a promised land. And even though you're leaving that promised land, I'm going to bring you back to it. And then he tells him, I'm going to give you abundant offspring through whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. And I promise you my presence, Jacob, and I promise you my protection. You want to talk about scandalous grace. It's what God does to Jacob who does not deserve any of it, which by the way, there's a beautiful seed of the gospel placed in there for us. And as we approach chapter 29, then on the heels of God doing this, we see that God's plan and covenant promises greatly encouraged Jacob. You're like, well, how do you see that? Because if you look in chapter 29 in verse one, it says, then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the East. Do you see the encouragement there? Do you see it? You probably don't. Because sadly, now we have really good, reliable translations of the Bible. You need to know that. However, there's sometimes it's hard to take the meaning in the original language and really convey what it means into English. In the original Hebrew, that first phrase literally reads better as, and Jacob lifting up his feet went to the land of 
Haran, to the people of the east. In other words, what that phrase means, lifting up his feet, it means that Jacob has a newfound spring in his step. What God had done, literally, it caused him to be like, oh my goodness, because you can imagine the heaviness of heart that Jacob left his homeland with. I mean, think about it. His family's in turmoil because of his actions and deception. He has a brother who literally wants to murder him. And now he's by himself on a journey with, we read, not many provisions. And he has a 450-mile journey on foot. I don't like walking from Shellway Drive to the high school. This is a 450-mile journey on foot, and he honestly doesn't really know even where he's going. He's got an idea, but he's never been there. He doesn't know what's happening. And, and this whole phrase of being in the East in the book of Genesis has a connotation of exile. The East in, 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 in the scriptures has this idea of exile. And so you can imagine the heaviness of his heart. And yet when God gives him his promise, his presence, according to his plan, immediately following this gracious revelation, Jacob has a spring in his step. Or as one Jewish commentator wrote, his heart lifted up his feet. The assur- Bless you. The assurance of God's presence and promises gives him confidence and cheerfulness as he journeys into exile. In chapters 29 to 31, they're going to tell us about Jacob's time in exile in this land called Haran, where he lived due to his own deceitful schemes. And in these chapters, they cover about 20 years of his life. And during this time, though, we're going to see, not just today, but as we go forward, that God moves for his glory, for the forward movement of his plan and promises, and for Jacob's good. Chapters 29, verses 1 to 30, here's what's interesting. The account that we'll read, if it sounds familiar to you, it should, because it parallels chapter 24. If you go back and read chapter 24, uh, there, there, there are some very important differences between these two chapters. But if you remember in Genesis 24, this is where Abraham, so Jacob's grandfather, who was the first to receive the promises of God, he's older now looking at his son who doesn't have a wife and says to his servant, I want you to go to the land of Haran or Padan Aram. It's kind of the same thing. Sends his servant to go find a wife for his son Isaac. And if you read how that happens and how this happens, they parallel each other with some very important differences. In fact, one prominent person that we meet, see in our passage today, we meet for the first time in Genesis 24, a man named Laban. Laban is Jacob's uncle, the brother of his mother. However, there is one major difference, one huge difference between 24 and 29. God is not referenced at all in the verses that we read. But if you read 24, he's mentioned all over the place. This is interesting because on the one hand, here's what I think, because it doesn't mean that God isn't present and God isn't active. I think we have two things going on. Number one, I think on the one hand, it is a reflection of just how much more Jacob needs to grow. 
how much he needs to grow as a man of God, which we will see happen before his death. But on the other hand, we see God's guiding hand throughout the entire thing. Not just in these verses, but in Jacob's entire time in exile. We must remember the activity of the Lord in Genesis 24 and how he orchestrates the events to bring Isaac, Jacob's dad, a wife with the similarities found in chapter 29. It is meant to call to mind to the reader, oh, the same God that moved to bring Isaac a wife with these similarities. It's the same God moving here, even though he's not specifically referenced. We see his providence in some really specific ways. We got to remember what providence is. So God has said, this is what I'm going to do in the world. These are the things that I want to be done. His providence is his guiding hand, governing, guiding, shaping, disposing of, moving all things great and small to achieve the plan that he set out. It is God's guiding hand to get it done. And so we see his providence moving in Jacob's life. First, that after a 450-mile journey where Jacob didn't even really know where he was going, he immediately arrives to the right region, to the right place, and to the right spot. This is what we see in verses 2 to 8. And as Jacob comes up on this well, not really knowing where he is, he sees these three flocks of sheep with these three shepherds. Most likely, these shepherds are younger, young boys with kind of the language that's seen there. And Jacob comes up and he has this conversation. Hey, where am I? And they're like, we're in Haran. And he's like, oh, do you know Laban? Yeah, we know Laban. Is he doing all right? Yeah, he's doing great. As a matter of fact, here comes his daughter. <laughs> right? Like, this is amazing. And, and then what we see is not only did God guide him to the right place, but he guided him there at the right time. Think about this. Rachel, his future wife, the love affair of his life, happens to be walking up at the exact moment that he arrives at this well that he's not even sure is the right place. And with Genesis 24 and God's promises at the end of 28 kind of operating in the background, we must not miss this point. God's divine providence guided Jacob. When Jacob sees Rachel, I love this. When Jacob sees Rachel, it's like he tries to get rid of the other shepherds. Where he's like, hey, I know it's not time to water the flocks yet, but why don't you water them and go take them out to pasture? We all know what's on his mind, right? Like, but what happens is, is now he gets this thing where he's like, all right, I got to impress this girl. And so he removes the stone by himself. What's interesting about this is this is a common well in antiquity, and there's still wells like this around. They were really big, and they'd have to cover them with a, with a stone, and it would take multiple people to move it so that they could water their flocks and then put it back so that people wouldn't steal water that weren't supposed to. Jacob, seeing the love of his life, tries to get rid of the three kids that are watching the flocks, and he's like, Watch this, Rachel. You know, it's like Ron Burgundy in his office when, when Veronica Corningstone comes in and he's like doing curls. 99, 100. <laughs> right? 
Sorry, I did so many, you know. And so he removes this stone, and then it says he helps water. And then what we read is right after this in verses 11 to 12, it says Jacob kissed Rachel, wept aloud, and told her who he was. So girls that are unmarried, any girl in here, would you love it if that would be what your first encounter was with the love of your life? He moves a stone, kisses you, weeps loudly, and then tells you who he is. Probably not a good idea for you single men in the room. Now, know, know this. The kissing is a normal ancient greeting. You'll see Laban kissed Jacob when he saw him. What's abnormal, though, is, is normally a dude didn't do that with a girl. So, there's, so commentators don't all agree about what Jacob's motives were here as he's doing this. Some think he was doing it because he was just honestly so happy after such a long journey and after fleeing a brother that wants to kill him and wondering, am I going to make it? Now all of a sudden he's like, oh my gosh, I'm in the right place. I found my family. I'm going to be okay. Oh my goodness. And he's just so relieved. Other commentators think this is love at first sight. This is like uh, 51st Dates or something. With, is that an old reference? Gosh, I'm so old. Uh, 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 but that, that, huh? Soundtrack. You're tracking. I like it. I like it. All those over 40. Uh, but, you know, th this idea that, that now Jacob has this love at first sight. And so he sees her and he wants to serve her and he weeps and he kisses her. Is this idea of going, this is my wife that I came for. Which one is it? I'm not entirely sure. Maybe it's a mixture of both. But there is no doubt that Jacob loves Rachel. That much the text makes abundantly clear. It's actually, interestingly enough, one of, the, one of the few marriages throughout Scripture that has this idea of romantic love in it. Interesting point there. But once Rachel learns who Jacob is, she runs to tell her father Laban, who we're told upon learning this, he runs back out to the well to meet Jacob. No doubt playing in Laban's mind would have been the, the time when Abraham's servant came. And, wanted, and, and he learned of Abraham's wealth and how God had blessed him. And he sent his sister to go marry him. And he's, you know, so you wonder, is Laban running out because it's another family member coming from Abraham and his sister? Or is he coming out because he's like, maybe he's got more wealth with him that I could grab? It wouldn't surprise me if that's what it was because Laban's a bit of a shyster. We're going to see that more as the story unfolds. But after Laban learns about Jacob and where he's from, Laban embraces him as family, and he invites him to stay. All of this shows God's divine providence in guiding Jacob to the right place, to the right people, at the right time. But things take a turn for the worse pretty quickly. And it seems innocent at first, but it will be seen for what it is down the road. In verse 14, it says that, La that Jacob stayed with Laban for about a month. And then in verse 15, Laban says to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Seems innocent enough. I want to pay you for your labor, Jacob. But Laban is wanting to fundamentally change the relationship he has with Jacob. He wants now to move, not just a family who's staying with you. He's wanting to now have this become an employer-employee relationship. Laban is seeking to gain power and leverage over Jacob now. Work for me. 
And it's interesting to me that, that the one who in Genesis 25 said would be the one who is to be served, which is Jacob, is now through these next couple chapters going to learn to serve. And he will not be the one in authority now. But Jacob doesn't seem to mind this because his heart is in love. We can endure anything when we're in love, can't we? Oh, that little speck on the side of your mouth of toothpaste. That's just so cute. Ten years down the road, it's like, will you get rid of the toothpaste, please? We all know what we're talking about. See, he agrees to serve Laban for seven years as his wage. Then he will marry Rachel. See, it was customary for a, for a groom to pay what's called a bride price to the father of the bride. But Jacob, he didn't come with anything to offer but himself. And he, and, 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 and he does, uh, what, or, uh, what he does is he offers the only thing he can, my life. Here is my life, and I will give it for your good, and I will serve you so that I can marry her. And I'll give you seven years of my life. That's a massive commitment, isn't it? Laban agrees to the terms, seven years of labor for his daughter. But don't miss, Laban never says, yes, you can marry Rachel. Instead, he says, I'll give her to you. Because I'd rather give her to you than to someone else. And so what we learn is that Jacob's love was so strong, verse 20 says, that these seven years seemed to be but a few days. Oh, young love. And at the end of seven years, Jacob goes to Laban and says, like you get this idea, it was almost like he was watching the clock. Tick, 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 seven years. Give me my wife. <laughs> Right? I've labored for you. Now give me my wife. But Laban had other plans. On the night that Jacob and Rachel were to consummate their marriage, Laban switched out his older daughter Leah for Rachel. And Jacob, thinking he was sharing the wedding bed with Rachel, wakes up in the morning to see that it was actually Leah laying there and not Rachel. He had been deceived. But you may be asking, how could this have happened? And that's not a bad question to ask. But we have some clues as to how this could have happened. In verse 22, it says that Laban made a feast. See, weddings were a much bigger deal than they are today. Today, we plan a lot for one day. Weddings back in the ancient times, and there's still places around the world that do this, they were a week-long party. And the Hebrew word for feast is actually, this is true, a drinking party. There was a lot of alcohol flowing at this party simply by the nature of the word that is used in Hebrew. So on one hand, Jacob is more than likely smashed out of his mind. Number two, the second clue is that it was evening time when Laban switched out his wife and put Leah in. Electric lights were not a thing. And so it would have been really dark when they went in to the wedding room. And many commentators believe that Leah would have been veiled because that was a custom of people. So you've got a very drunk groom, it's dark, and she's veiled. Stage is set. <laughs> and Jacob wakes up and oh my goodness, 
what has happened. And he goes out to confront Laban, who says it's not their custom to marry the younger before the older. And they come to a second agreement. He says, I tell you what, finish out the week with my daughter Leah. In other words, have enough time so that maybe my, uh, that, that, that my daughter could, could, could get pregnant. And then I'll give you Rachel and then work for me another seven years. And that's what happens. And isn't it ironic, though, that the one who deceived his father to steal the birthright from his older brother and to steal the blessing from his older brother is in fact now deceived by his father-in-law and an oldest daughter. The deceiver has been deceived. Poetic justice in Jacob's life, isn't it? See, even in this moment, though, we see God's providential hand guiding this situation, and we cannot miss this. The Lord disciplined Jacob. The Lord disciplined Jacob. See, the Lord is allowing and guiding Jacob through this deception, through the 14 years of service, even in marrying a woman he does not love, to shape him into a more faithful man from whom the nation of Israel will eventually descend and eventually even get their namesake. God is not mocked, ladies and gentlemen. God does not allow sin to go unnoticed and uncared about. He is not content with his people being content to live a life according to the flesh. We see this same selfish deception that Jacob used. The Lord turned the tables back on him to himself be deceived by. See, the scriptures are clear. What we sow is what we reap. This idea of karma if you're using that as a Christian, stop it. That's a Hindu Eastern idea of an impersonal universe that does like a slingshot thing with life. That is what the scriptures say is God has established a world of justice. And the things we sow are the things we reap. If we sow according to the flesh, we will reap according to the flesh. If we sow into goodness, we will reap goodness. That's not impersonal karma. That is a deeply personal God who has established a good world. The scriptures over and over, we see this. Jacob sowed deception and he reaps deception. Galatians chapter 6 verses 7 and 8 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And Jacob is a man of the flesh. He's a usurper of his brother. He steals the birthright instead of waiting for the Lord to fulfill his promises. He is impetuous with wanting to marry Rachel that he completely dismisses Leah. He doesn't understand customs. Even though he's been encouraged by the promises of God, Jacob does not come across as a deep man of faith through this entire chapter. He never once thanks God for that, that he's in the right place. He never once thanks God for Rachel. He never once thanks God that he's in the right place. It's like he's doing it all himself. For a lifetime of sowing to the flesh, he received loving discipline. But we must not miss this point. It's for his good and the advancement of God's will in and through his life. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12 says this. 
My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, or as the, as a father the son in whom he delights. The scriptures say that God loved Jacob, but his brother Esau, he hated. You could read that in Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, and in Romans 13. While this is a much deeper topic, I cannot go into length here. It suffice it to say this. What does it mean that God loved Jacob but hated Esau? God regularly disciplined Jacob. He left Esau alone. Let that sit with you for a minute. God showed his love for Jacob that he disciplined him to bend him towards righteousness, to bend him towards away from his flesh to the things of God. He did not let him just sit in the decisions he made. Esau, he left him alone. This is a hugely important con. There it is. In the New Testament book of Hebrews, encouraging Christ's people not to grow weary in their struggle against sin with our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author quotes Proverbs 3, 11 to 12, but then he says this, and it's really important that we see this. Look at what it says. It says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, for what son is there whom this father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and, res and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, meaning God, disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to the one who has been trained by it. God, in disciplining his children whom he loves, he does it and it validates that they're in fact his children. Number two, he, he's treating you as a child. Number three, he's doing it for your good so that you share in his holiness and display a life of righteousness. We, see, we continue to see how the, Lord how the Lord's providence will continue to guide and guard Jacob because he never leaves or forsakes his people. He will continue to show himself faithful in every one of his promises But what are we to take away from this? Number one, remember God's plan, God's promises, and God's providence in your own life. Let it lift your, let your heart lift up your feet as you live each and every day of your life that if you belong to the Lord, you are a child of promise and his providence is guiding you every day. Even in the hard things you walk through, God's providence is allowing you to walk there because he wants to shape something beautiful in you and through you. God's plan is that despite our sin and rebellion, he welcomes back sinners and is making all things new. And that comes with a truckload of promises and hope. And he's able to do this because Christ stood in the gap. 
I can't help but be captured by the fact that Jacob gave 14 years of his life to get his bride, but Jesus comes and gives his whole life to redeem his bride back to himself. He paid the bride price to redeem the church back to himself. And he will never leave her and never forsake her. Every promise that God has given finds its fulfillment in Christ. He is the descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, through whom all the nations of the earth are blessed. So let the divine promises of God given to all who belong to him given, give his people a spring in our step to endure all that life has to throw at us because we know we are not destined for wrath. We are destined for hope. And number two, Remember God's discipline. Recognize God's loving discipline. He who began a good work in you will see it through to completion. The church is his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, Ephesians 2.10 says. God, through his spirit, is shaping a new life in us, in our struggle against sin. Let us remember that, that, that in love, the Lord disciplines us in order that we may share in his holiness and in his righteousness. The Lord does this work in his children. We who have been born by the spirit, all who belong to him, bear godly fruit for the glory of God. If we are left without discipline, that shows we are not his children. I can't help but think, and I'm going to close, of what I read from Pastor Albert Martin on this subject. Oh, please don't miss this. Where Albert Martin says this, Since Scripture declares that all who are truly saved are the workmanship of God, the question I must ask is, have I been subject of that workmanship? The question is not the sincerity of my decision or my resolve or whatever I may call it. The question is not what have I done with reference to Christ and his salvation. Next slide, please. The essential question is this. Has God done something in me? Not have I accepted Christ, but has Christ accepted me? The issue is not, have I found the Lord, but has the Lord found me? So I ask as you sit here today, has the Lord found you? Has Christ accepted you? You may be asking, how do I know? I believe the scriptures give beautiful answers to this. And I just have three questions for you to reflect on in your own life. Number one, are you growing to despise your own sin and mourn over it? That is a telltale sign that you belong to Jesus. Because if you know Jesus, you can't be okay with your sin. Because he died for it. He was butchered under it. And he hates sin. And his people, even though we're not perfect, cannot be comfortable living as if my life is the same. That I can go on sleeping with who I want, acting how I want, being my own authority. I can live with my boyfriend. It doesn't matter. Yes, it does. To Christ's people, it matters. I can determine my own sexuality. No, you can't if you belong to Jesus because he will not allow his people to remain okay with doing things that he hates and despises. 
Number two, is your inward desire then to trust in and follow Christ as your greatest treasure, joy, and hope. That in your neediness, you know Christ is fully sufficient. And I don't just want to be a better person. I want Jesus and I want everything that he has to offer. I don't, I'm not trying to be a good person. I'm not trying to just be a more moral person. And if at the end of my life, the only thing someone says about me is he loved Jesus and he was enough for him. That's enough. The scriptures tell us. And number three, do you sense the Lord's discipline producing in you a hunger and a thirst for righteousness and holiness? These are marks that show evidence. Am I just a churchgoer? Am I just wanting to be motivated for the week to be a nicer, kinder person? Or am I actually one that belongs to Jesus and have been made new by him and that new life is being produced in me even though I'm not perfect, his grace is enough. The Lord disciplines those whom he loves and those whom he calls he transforms from the inside out with patience, with kindness, and for our good. So if you can say yes to those, Rejoice, rejoice, for you are a son and daughter of God. If you are here today and find yourself concerned that maybe you don't know the Lord, there has been no genuine heart change, but you find yourself wanting it, knowing you need it, you're tired of the sin and brokenness of the world, maybe you're tired of the brokenness that you have caused in this world, I urge you, don't overlook this as a mere feeling Take that discomfort and call to Jesus because everyone who calls to him will be saved. Please don't leave here until you've spoken to someone about how you can do that. That alone could be evidence that the God of all ages is knocking on the door of your heart to find life in his name.